Well, let me begin by asking you to think of a favorite passage of Scripture that you might have. Do you have a, a favorite part, a favorite passage, something, a place you go to often, maybe several places you go to under certain circumstances, and you've been there again and again? Maybe it's a, a tear-stained part of your Bible. Well, it's not that we believe that some parts of the Bible are more inspired by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God, but there are some portions of Scripture that we are keenly aware of the loss of it being heartful, harmful, hurtful, painful for us if it were not part of Scripture. Are you thinking of a passage like that for you? Well, let me bet that no one is thinking about Matthew 1 in the genealogy. Matthew summarizes his genealogy, verse 1 of Matthew 1, like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why does Matthew begin his important biography of Jesus and really for us kick off the whole New Testament with a genealogy summarized with just son of David and son of Abraham? Why them? And is this important? And we would say, yes, indeed, it is important. Matthew knew what he was doing. And the importance of Matthew 1.1 flows out of many Old Testament passages. But one of the most significant Old Testament passages that flows into the New Testament, and everything in between, really, is 2 Samuel 7. That's where we are today. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Seven. I'm betting 2 Samuel 7 was also not a passage that came to mind for many of us or any of us as we tried to think of favorite passages, but that's where we are today. And it might surprise you that many biblical scholars refer to 2 Samuel 7 as the most important chapter in the Old Testament. I was surprised to, to read that as much as I did reading through the commentaries this week, seeing just how many of them state that, that 2 Samuel 7 is the most important or probably the most important Old Testament passage in our Bibles. And today I want to really show us something of the story of the whole Bible through 2 Samuel. Picture this before we get into 2 Samuel. Think of the stories and speeches in the Bible as being like streams or creeks. They're not ponds or lakes. They're all going somewhere. They're all headed in a direction. They're moving. And every now and then, several streams meet together, and they form a river. And then the river gets bigger with each tributary and each creek or other river that pours into it, it, it grows. Sometimes large rivers connect with other large rivers and you get something like a Nile River. Well, I'd argue that the Nile River of the Old Testament begins at 2 Samuel 7. And that Nile River keeps growing until it dumps out into the ocean of Jesus in the New Testament. Of course, the plan of God goes on further than that. We're in the plan of God now. That's not a part of my analogy. I apologize for that. But 2 Samuel 7, let's read the first half of it today. 
Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of them of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and may be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from, being, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to the prophet. And we'll stop there. Next Sunday we'll return to this chapter to see the second half where David responds in praise to these great promises. But this week we'll we'll focus on the promises that God gave him. Now, before we can see the importance of these promises in the plan of God or their relevance for us today, we have to understand the bits of the story itself, the context in which these promises came to David. So let's start with this. David's reasonable plan, number one. David's reasonable plan. We see that in the first three verses of this chapter. If you were with us for the last couple of Sundays, you might remember parts from 2 Samuel 5 and 6. I know it's hard to remember sermon bits uh, in between sermons from week to week. But remember, King David at this point is now fully, in, in every way, the king of Israel. Remember that back in chapter 5, the king of Tyre honored David by building him a palace of cedar wood. The Philistines at this point are now defeated. Jerusalem has now been cleared out of the Philistines. It's now open for business, open for God's business, for God's worship. 
And the Ark of the Covenant, as we saw last week, has now been brought up from storage into Jerusalem. Yes, it was with some difficulty and drama that it got to Jerusalem, but it's there. And it's to be there as a sign of God's presence among his people and the spot where his worship and sacrifice is made. And so we saw last week, chapter 6, verse 17. You see there, David took the ark and, quote, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. That's where it is. And now chapter 7, David is sitting in his palace one night with crickets chirping outside. It's a quiet and peaceful night. It's been a good day. The prophet and the king are discussing the affairs of the nation, perhaps admiring the cedar panels of the palace. And David gets restless. Something about this is not right. Verse 2, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Implied is that God isn't in a permanent dwelling, but a temporary one, a makeshift tent. And God, David would say, should have greater splendor in majesty than me, his servant. It's all very reasonable, and it makes sense to the prophet, who says, go, yeah, do whatever you're thinking. God is clearly with you. But that night, God spoke to the prophet. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. And as we read, we saw already, God has a different plan. God has a better plan. God halts David's plans. And he also gives new promises, bigger promises than anything he's promised before. And so already, I think we can pause here and apply this to our own Christian living We can learn and remember something that we often forget that, like Proverbs says, a man's heart plans his ways, but it's the Lord who orders his steps. You can say you're going to go and buy and sell and make a profit, but you should have said, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. God redirects. He overrules. We often think we have a good plan, and it may be good relatively, We may have good motives. David seems to have good motives, and yet God intervenes. He stops him in his tracks, as he's done in our lives again and again and again. He doesn't always send a prophet. In fact, he rarely sends a prophet, in my experience. He has never yet sent a prophet after he's overturned my plans to tell me why this is a no and and what he's going to do instead. But we have the same God. We can trust him. We can trust him whatever befalls, even though we don't see how his plans are better than our plans. So that's David's reasonable plan. But then secondly, we see God's enlarged promises. Verses 4 to 17. And we'll be under this heading for a good while because there's so much to cover. God tells Nathan the prophet to go and say to the king, verse 5, go and tell my servant David. Notice just this so far. That in this picture, the king submits himself to the prophet. That's what David was essentially asking, even though there wasn't a question stated in verse 2. Him telling his plans or stating the problem to the prophet was essentially getting approval. And Nathan gave approval and he blessed it. Perhaps he blessed it too hastily as we read on. But 
he, he blessed it perhaps too hastily because it's the word of the Lord that trumps all, both king and prophet. In fact, that's why the king submits himself to the prophet, because the prophet in these days was the predominant mouthpiece for God. God is always the true king of his people, even in the Old Testament, even when there were kings of Israel. David is functionally the prince or the vice regent, and so God calls him my servant David. It's a great title because from one angle, it's humble. I mean, David's the king, but God doesn't call him a king. God calls him my servant David. He does God's bidding, not his own. The kings of the nations aren't like that. They don't talk like that. They don't like that kind of address. But, but from another angle, that title, my servant David, is pretty lofty. I mean, plenty of people in the Bible are called servants of God in various ways, but, but only a few are called my servant blank, my servant first name. You got Moses. You got Joshua. I think Abraham before Moses. You got David. And you have Jesus, my servant. Jesus, my servant, is all through Isaiah 40 to 48 as Isaiah unpacks that suffering servant who will, who will come. I'm sorry, Isaiah 49 and following. So to call David my servant, God was speaking of him as my main man, my man, the man of the hour, the guy who's going to do my work for me. But then God, after addressing David as such, he gets down to business with a gentle rebuke, beginning with a question. Verse 5, would you build me a house to dwell in? I love verse 6. I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In verse 7, God goes on saying, in all that time, did I ask anyone to build me a house? At any point that I complain that I'm only in these tent quarters? And here already we have some powerful insight into God's nature and ways. This might call to mind passages like Psalm 50, where God says there, Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Instead of me asking you for a meal, you call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you'll glorify me. You see, even when Solomon does later on build a temple for the Lord, when he dedicates it, he dedicates it by saying in 1 Kings 8, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Solomon got something of what God was talking about here in 2 Samuel 7 about his, what we call omnipresence, that he's everywhere. Or what we call aseity. You probably haven't heard that word, or maybe not many of you have. Theologians speak of God's aseity as his self-existence. He comes from himself. He's self-generating. He needs nothing. It's really what Paul preached in Acts 17. 
God does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That's God's aseity. And David was starting to learn something more about that. David's plan was reasonable, but the lesson was being made clear through the prophet to the king that God doesn't need your good ideas. God is not waiting on you. He's not held up by his people. He is God all by himself. God is always in need of nothing. So still today, we do him no favors. We can not improve his situation one millimeter or ounce. And yet these opening words to David from God, I think also reveal something about God's condescension. Another theological word, but it's his lowliness, his drawing nearness. You see in verse 6, what did he say? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Egypt. I've been traveling around with them. I've been in the wilderness with them. God had hitched himself by covenant to a wilderness people, making him a wilderness God. They dwelt in tents, and he dwelt in tents too. And it was his idea to travel with them, to be in their midst, and to have a tabernacle of his own. God was camping. I hate camping. (laughs) He camped for a generation with these complaining, sinful people in the dirt. You see how far the stoop is that the God of creation stooped to tabernacle among them. What awesome condescension. Condescension which is only matched. No, outdone by the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's getting ahead of ourselves, I know, but we can't help but jump there because we know where this river is going. It's first got to build. So God swells the river with these grand promises to David. Some of these promises have already come to pass, like in verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. Check. Done. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. In a sense, check. Done. It's in the middle of verse 9 that the future tense begins, that before it was past tense. And, And then there's future tense where there are some promises that will be fulfilled soon in David's lifetime. Some promises that will be fulfilled in a generation after David. And some promises that will be fulfilled much, much later. So verse 9, see what category this falls in. I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Already that was starting to be the case and It would be even more so in David's own life. And and here we are many thousand years later still talking about David. 
Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And verse 11, I I will give you rest from all your enemies. Some of that's still future. But notice this, it's summarizing stuff promised actually long ago. Abraham in the book of Genesis was promised a great name. And that from him would come a great people, a nation. Kings would come from him. God would give them a place to dwell in. He would plant them there in that land flowing with milk and honey. And here they are, and God is saying this has been fulfilled, and yet it still will be more fulfilled. Moses and Joshua, they were promised that eventually in this land there would be rest on every side. You don't have to keep your head on a swivel because there's no enemy to the west or to the east or to the south or to the north. And that rest started to come here in 2 Samuel 7. It's how the narrator introduces everything. There's now rest from all David's enemies. And God spoke similarly in a past tense way in verse 9 about having rest from your enemies. But, but it's also future tense in verse 11 because God knew that there was more rest to come. So you can think about it if you put yourself in David's shoes. David, perhaps, there in his palace that one evening, he thought that all the strings were being tied up now. What was promised to Moses and Joshua, what was promised to Abraham and his sons, And what was promised to David earlier on, it seemed like it was about to be accomplished. David must have been asking, what is left on the list to check off? Or what can we focus on now? Ah, God needs a permanent dwelling place in this permanent land. You can see how he would have thought. Maybe he was thinking explicitly, God can finally rest. God can finally be home. He's been traveling so long. But God was far from done. He was not going to rest. The river rolls on. In fact, it's swelling by verse 11 when God says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Did you notice there's a play on words here? David wanted to make a house that is a physical structure for God. And God says, you're not going to make me a house, a physical structure, but I will make you a house. And by that, God means a lineage, a dynasty, an offspring. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so here we find out David will will die. But that won't be the end of the promises. I will raise up your offspring after you, and they shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. You read in the Bible these transitions from one king to another. They're often shaky. A good king doesn't always leave his kingdom in the hands of a good and godly son, and so you, you have upheaval. But God says, I will establish his kingdom. In verse 13, he, your, your offspring, he shall build a house for my name. 
And that's what happened a generation later. Solomon got to do what David asked for. We find out in Chronicles, I believe it is, why David couldn't be the one to, to build this house. It's because he was a man of blood. He killed so many, it wasn't right, God thought. And so Solomon was a man, a king of peace, and, and he was allowed to build the place for God. Verse 13, second half, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here's where the lines start to blur together a little bit. Because we were just talking about Solomon and the temple that would happen in just a few decades or so. And then we have a kingdom that goes on forever. And we know what that will mean eventually if we're Christians. But we see here that the horizons are somewhat indistinguishable. Two things are being talked about at once. Solomon will die, and yet God says, I will establish his kingdom forever. That is the dynasty forever. The lineage will go on forever. The kingdom and the throne will go on forever somehow. We're not told how, not here, not yet. And before we can wonder too long about what does that mean, an eternal throne forever, how does that happen? Attention is placed back on Solomon and the Davidic kings to come, where God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, he's a sinner, even if he's my king, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love won't depart from him. It won't be like it was with Saul. With Saul, I cut him off. No more. We read just last week in chapter 6 that Saul's daughter was barren the rest of her days. The Saul line had ceased. It won't be like that for Solomon. It won't be like that for the, the Davidic kings that follow. They will sin and God will discipline them and sometimes quite severely, but God will not remove his steadfast love, his covenant love, his chesed because of his love for David. And then the culmination or the loftiest of all these promises, which really is just repeating what we saw in verse 13. Verse 16 we read, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times we're told it'll be forever. Establish his kingdom forever. Your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And do you know what the Hebrew word behind that word forever means? It means forever. It does. It, not, not a long time. It's not like a, you know, a pretty long time or something like that. It, it means forever. So what a promise that is. We may not get what a great promise that is. We don't care for kings much here in good old America. But haven't you seen enough movies about the kings of old to know that they're really concerned about an heir. They really don't like those seasons of being king and there being no son around who is going to be the heir apparent. And so the, the lineage thing is good if you're a king. A dynasty thing is good if you're a king. In most royal families in history only lasted like four generations or five or six or seven. They actually don't go very long at all. Eventually, you get a, a boy king who can't make a baby yet, and he dies of malaria, and that's it. 
But God promises a dynasty that lasts forever. Again, how, we ask. And there are only one of two ways. There are two ways in which these eternal promises could be fulfilled, either by an eternal succession of Davidic kings sitting on an eternal throne, or by one Davidic king eventually coming who himself is eternal and he will reign forever and ever. Hold that thought for a moment and just stand in awe of what we can see even from 2 Samuel 7 alone. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator and scholar, he offers three helpful bullet point observations about God's promises to David. With these promises to David, death does not annul them. David will die, the promises go on. With these promises to David, sin cannot destroy them. He will sin, I will chastise him, but it won't remove my covenant love. And thirdly, time will not exhaust them. Forever, forever, forever. What indestructible promises. What a covenant-making God this is. His ways are unstoppable. He will not rest. He, he gives grace, and then he gives grace upon grace. All right, now thirdly, let's talk about God's promises being enlarged even more. Could it be? Could God's promises to his people through David be enlarged even more than this? And the answer is yes. From here on out in the Bible, we will see these promises not just repeated, but enlarged. And we, enlarged, and we see it in the first instance with one of the first lines of David's praise in response to these promises right here in the same chapter. So again, that's for next week, the second half. But let me just read a couple verses of what we'll see to see how this thing is on the move and swelling by the minute almost. So verse 18, David says, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And here's the key. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Instruction for mankind, it seems like it's instruction for David. Perhaps for David's sons. Is it instruction for mankind? Is this about something more than just Israel? about just one family in the ancient Near East? Yes, it is indeed. But it's amazing. I mean, God didn't say anything about this being about mankind. He talked about my people, my people Israel. And yet David knew something. He knew something global was afoot. Perhaps he had in mind Genesis 49 that there'd be a ruler coming from the tribe of Judah someday, and to him shall go the obedience of the nations. Whoa, that's pretty big. That's like king of kings kind of stuff. And what's more is that this phrase in 2 Samuel 7, instruction for mankind, isn't just instruction for mankind. Walt Kaiser, a 
well-known Old Testament scholar, he, he translates this as the charter for mankind. The charter for mankind. So if this is the charter for all humanity, then I think we're on safe ground to say 2 Samuel 7 probably is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. Think of how David wrote in Psalm 72. You can turn there if you want or just listen if you'd prefer, but now we'll be all over the Bible, and so either flip or gaze on the screen behind me as we talk about some other passages in Scripture. Like Psalm 72, which David prayed probably for his son Solomon's inauguration as king. And and he said in verse 8, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. Verse 10, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. And may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. And verse 17, May his name endure forever. An even greater name. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people bless him and all nations. Nations call him blessed. A lot of that is what God promised to Abraham, isn't it? To be blessed and to be a blessing. That the nations would come from him and be blessed by him. That he would have a great name. And of course, David knew all that as he prayed for his son Solomon and and he built upon it and he added to it. Think of the well-known verses we read or sing about even sometimes in Isaiah 9. We talk about these at Christmas often. They're familiar to you, but you should hear them in this context. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now we're mingling categories here. We thought perhaps we're dealing with only the human. And now we're also seeing something of a divine one to come. He's the everlasting father, the prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end, eternal. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Forever's a big deal, isn't it? You might think, Who cares that this thing's forever? Doesn't forever eventually get boring? And we think that because we can only imagine weak, sinful, broken things lasting forever. And we would not only get bored, but frustrated with those. And that's why we can can say something like, it seems like you get bored. Because we want to jump from one sinful, broken thing to another slightly better sinful, broken thing. But if it was perfect, we'd want it forever and ever and ever and ever. And think of the hallelujah chorus with that antiphonal repetition of forever. And uh, he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And he shall reign forever and ever. I wish someone could sing this for us right now. (laughs) Right? Forever is a big deal. And Freddie Handel knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote that stuff. 
Isaiah 55. Listen to this. This might be one not on your radar for thinking about David and what's to come. Isaiah 55, in the middle of verse 3, there, 300 years after David and still 700 years before the coming of Christ, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord God. That sits right in the middle of invitation verses in Isaiah. Verses 1 through 3 are those famous words, Come, all you who are thirsty, come, come to the waters. Why will you buy when it's free? Come, you who are thirsty, drink, eat of my food, or seek the Lord while he may be found. That's what follows. Of course, all that is right in the hotbed of Isaiah's talk about a suffering servant to come and an everlasting covenant that will happen, a covenant of peace, and they all bounce back to David. It's all because of my steadfast, sure love for David. So one is coming. According to Isaiah, a servant is coming. God himself is coming. A season of peace, a forever season of peace is coming. It's the son of David. He will dwell with them. It will be forever and ever and ever and ever. It'll be not just for Israel, but for all the nations. Listen to little old Amos. When's the last time you read Amos? Maybe this will encourage you to go back and read in Amos 9, verse 11, that in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. You see, the answer to the human problem of sin and rebellion in this world is, is buried in these Huge, important passages like 2 Samuel 7 and in these hidden nooks and crannies in the prophets that followed as they built upon what God had promised before. And they built upon it by God's leading and speaking. Like this in Jeremiah 30. Listen to this gem. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, God says, and he shall approach me. For who shall dare of himself approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. There's the key line. I will be your God, you will be my people. It's said different ways all through the Bible, but it's said all over the place. It was a promise first spoken to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will be their God. That's what was lost in the garden when Adam and Eve rejected their God. Ever since then, God has been on the move, not at rest, but working to restore his godness to a people, to make a new creation. That's what the whole Old Testament is showing us. It's a river. It's a river that's joining into rivers and feeding eventually into one vast ocean. And sometimes in the Old Testament, that Nile River that was growing and swelling 
couldn't be seen because there was the brush of sin blocking it, the confusion of trees, the judgment of God upon his people blocking the river. But it was always there and it was always growing and swelling until all things come together. Remember Hannibal in the A-team? He loved it when a plan comes together. So does God. So if you want to add an extra point to the back of your sermon notes, all God's plans and promises come together. That's why Matthew began like he did. Maybe this is your new favorite verse. Here's the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. In other words, in him, all of God's promises are yes and amen. It's in him that he will be their God and they will be his people. And that was the plan all along. And it's what Jesus came to do. He came to plant them. He came that they might dwell secure. He came that we might have true peace on all sides. He came to bring the eternal kingdom of God to show that he is the eternal son of God. He is the eternal final son of David and he is now the king of kings and lord of lords. All this is possible because he was that promised one. And he welcomes us. He welcomes the nations. He welcomes sinners to enter into this covenant love because of the cross and through faith. He doesn't need us but he gives and gives and gives. And the son has come to make us sons and daughters. In Jesus, we have a better king, a forever king, a final king, God's true and only king. In Jesus, we have a better kingdom than any of the foreshadowy kingdoms that came before or any kingdom you can imagine on the earth today. It's the final one, the true one, the forever one. And Jesus came to bring a better covenant. Other places we could have read in the, new, in the Old Testament have to do with a new covenant, like Jeremiah 31, or everlasting covenant is even one way of describing the new covenant. So we shouldn't be surprised that we get to the New Testament and read in Hebrews 9 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He welcomes us to himself and we can draw near only because sin has not only been disciplined but it's been paid for at the cross. Have you come to Jesus? Have you seen your need for a savior like that? Are you longing for a king who will rule your life kindly and justly and fatherly? Christian, our God is a covenant-keeping God. All the promises behind us are finished, reminding us that all the ones ahead are as good as done. Death does not annul them. Sin cannot destroy them, and time will not exhaust them. He will come again. And so we pray for his coming, we watch for his coming. We believe he will come again. In the meantime, we 
rejoice that he's given us salvation and adoption and a thousand great miraculous gifts. He's given us each other. He's given us the spirit. He's given us his word. And he's also given us a meal of remembrance. The Lord's Supper, we call it. Communion. We read in Luke 22 that on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten it, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the bread and the wine vividly represent a body torn and blood spilled out for all people who would ever come to repent of their sins and believe that that is their salvation. We're called in this meal to remember. We're a forgetful people. We forget our need for a savior. We forget the extent of his love and sacrifice for us. Let us today remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as Paul taught us.